you can unlock tools, tactics, and techniques once reserved for the world's elite intel agencies and use Doom to transform your future. Quote by none other than, he's a secret agent, man. The name's Bustamante, Andrew Bustamante. Andrew is a former covert CIA intelligence officer, decorated military combat veteran, author, and successful Fortune 10 corporate advisor. After 20 years of leading human and technical intelligence operations for corporate and government clients, Andrew founded EverydaySpy.com, the first ever online platform designed to teach elite spy skills to help everyday people hack their way to the top. Featured in both U.S. and international media, Andrew's training content has been praised for its innovative, authentic, and life-changing impact. The training content is also explained in his book called Everyday Espionage, Winning the Workplace, which helps the ordinary civilian employee utilize spycraft to win in different aspects of the workplace. This training manual highlights hacking everyday things like increasing your energy, how to time block efficiently, nailing job interviews to more serious, possibly life-saving things like treating wounds while in the field, and mastering pain tolerance. Without further ado, Passing the Torch with Andrew Bustamante starts now. Andrew, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining my show. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good, Martin. I'm happy to be here, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for the kind intro and for the invitation. Did I say? Did I pronounce your last name right? Because I, I, I should have asked you before, but I was watching YouTube oh, yeah. videos. Okay, and I was. Yeah, man, it's a it's a mouthful. You're totally right, Bustamante. Yeah, and I, I, it's got like some like some pizzazz to it. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As I mentioned, I did some research on you, and uh, we have a common link. I'm active duty military. But I saw that you graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2003. And with that, based off reading your bio and everything else, what is really the genesis of what is now your career? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. The, the place where my career started was absolutely founded in probably the second week that I was at CIA's training camp, The Farm. That's where it all kind of clicked for me. I mean, it was, it was life-changing for me when CIA started teaching me how to view the world. Uh, and it's one of those things, for anybody who's ever had like a life-changing moment, it's very clear to you when that moment happens. It's, and it's just a moment. It's not like it happened over hours. It is usually just like a bolt of lightning. And that's yeah. what happened to me at the agency. They just, they, somebody said something, somebody showed me something, I don't know, but there was this moment of just total clarity where I was like, I'm never going to see the world again after this moment. And that's, that's how I got to where I am now. Now, you said like you got to where you are now. It's been super impressive. I want to ask you kind of a deeper question, and then I want to get into some lighter stuff. But after just researching so much, especially over the past 19 years since your time at the academy, with your current background, is like what is a childhood coping method you unknowingly developed only to realize later that it wasn't normal, but has been critical to all your adulthood success? So... That's a, you got some really good questions. I see why you, you warned me that this one was heavy, right? So, <laughs> so as a kid, we are all, all of our, all of our jacked up everything, everything that's wrong with us started when we were kids. Yeah. And, and if you were to go a step further, everything that's wrong with us was imparted in us by our parents when we were kids. So for me, what that looks like is my, I, 
I was raised by a stepdad. My father died before I could know him before when I was still like an infant. Um, and I was raised by my mom and my grandmother until my mom remarried. So I was raised in a, in a mixed family, a 1990s, 1980s era mixed family, which was basically, you know, dad is dad, but you know, I'm his son by legal status, but he treats his, my half sisters, he treats his own daughters differently than he treats me. Anybody who had a step parent in that period of time, you know, they, they get it. There's, there's always that, you know, the, the step parent that's super into being a step parent and he becomes the true parent, you know, and everybody yeah. loves that. That wasn't my stepdad. So for me, I always had to navigate this world of knowing that I wasn't my dad's favorite, but trying to get attention from my mom, but trying to do it in a way where nobody assumed that I was being tricky or malicious because everyone, both mom and dad, constantly accused me of trying to play the one against the other. So when you're, I mean, that means that odds were stacked against me all the time. I had two adults always assuming the worst in me. So no matter what I did, even if I did something that was just genuinely, I was just genuinely interested in football, whatever it might be, there was always going to be the threat of someone thinking that it was me being malicious. Yeah. So, so the way that I learned to cope with that was by just being the observer, by just being quiet all the time. And then I learned to not ask questions and just do the things I wanted to do in a way that I wouldn't get caught. From that kind of coping mechanism as a kid, for well or for ill, that's how I got through the academy. When I got to the academy, the academy was the exact same way. At the Air Force Academy or any military academy, everybody assumes that you're the worst, especially your freshman year, right? You're, you're dumb, you're lazy, whatever, right? You're trying to run a scam. They, they have to put it up on their wall, the, the principles of the place. We will not lie, steal, or cheat, nor tolerate among us anyone who does. That's totally BS. You have, everybody lies. It's part of life to lie. Everybody cheats. You just may not cheat on your schoolwork, but you're cheating somewhere. You're cheating on your taxes. You're cheating to get a discount on like a, on a pair of shoes or something. Everybody lies. Everybody cheats. And everybody steals in some way, shape, or form. It just doesn't have to be stealing from a store or stealing from like your fellow cadet. But people steal attention and they steal hearts, right? And they steal ideas and they steal imagination. They steal stuff all the time. So what ends up happening is the people who graduate from a military academy, it's not that they don't lie, steal, or cheat. It's that they don't get caught when they lie, steal, and cheat. And that's just the perfect feeding ground for becoming a spy. Because a spy is just someone who has learned how to get away with breaking the rules. And once you know how to do that, CIA can come in and then sharpen your tool set. And now they can send you out offensively anywhere in the world so that you can lie, steal, cheat, collect intel, make spies, run sabotage operations without, without exposing the hand of the U.S. government. So my childhood coping mechanism turned into a very useful tool for national security later on. And that wasn't just me. I was surrounded by men and women who had the exact same experience, learning how to be professional criminals in the amateur world before we were made professional spies. I was thinking of this question and when I was, it- I had a bunch of different thoughts and at five o'clock this morning is kind of how I put it all together and how I did <laughs> ask that, but, and I wasn't sure how to ask it, but, um, but thanks for that response. And just, uh, that's a fantastic perspective. 
you talked about, again, that also kind of leads me into another question. And by the way, I only have a couple of questions. I just want to see how this goes. We'll have organic conversation. But this leads me into another thought is, you know, the coping mechanism in your childhood, you know, shaped your time at the, uh, at the academy. More than that, since your time at the academy or since your time at the academy and with all the training with the CIA and everything, how has the training and background impacted your ability to build relationships with people? And also just first impressions when, when you meet someone. Yeah, the, the agency does an excellent job of teaching you how to think like the person you're sitting across the table from. That's the place where the military falls down flat. The, the military does not do a good job of teaching you to think like your commanding officer or think like your you know, fellow soldier uh, or think like your, com- your sergeant. It doesn't teach you to think like anybody. If anything, the, the military tells you to stop thinking and just do what you're told. And, and the idea is that if, they, if you can start there, then they can fill you with whatever skills that they need you to have from there, right? They'll teach you leadership and they'll teach you proactive, uh, collaborative, whatever, right? There was a term that's slipping my mind right now. Assertive followership, I think, was something I learned from the Air Force. Hmm. But in order to teach you anything, they first think they have to erase every every bit of where you came from. The agency takes a very different approach. CIA is very human focused. CIA is human focused because CIA's mission is to collect human intelligence, something known as human. Human is different than the other kinds of ints, the other kinds of intelligence uh, disciplines that are out there, whether it's MAZINT or SIGINT or MILINT or whatever it might be. So because their focus is on human, the only place that you can collect human is from human beings. You can't collect it from a, a data hardware server. You can't connect it from, you know, uh, stealing clippings off the floor of, uh, of some secret base somewhere. You, you have to collect it from human beings. The only way you get a human being to trust you enough to tell you something that they know is secret is by building a very strong personal relationship. Kind of like what, you, what most people build with a girlfriend or a boyfriend yeah. or what they build with a close friend. We learn how to simulate that relationship and, uh, and make it artificial, but only artificial from our perspective. It seems very genuine from the spy's perspective and that, or the, uh, the asset's perspective. And they teach us how to do it in a, in a truncated time frame. So it's all about human psychology and human nature and understanding how you can use that to, to get ahead in a relationship. On that how do you break a cover story? And this is based off one of your YouTube videos, but it, it ties in perfectly, I think, to what you were just stating. But how can someone break a cover story when someone is lying to you? Yeah, so when people lie to you, what, what's sad, it's always, it's always kind of fun and refreshing when people lie to you and you're the spy. <laughs> Why is that? What? <laughs> because it's, just, it's like watching a little kid. It's like watching a little kid try to, you know, whatever, play a sport or play an instrument, you're like, oh, this is really cute. Look, they're, they're lying. It's like, oh, this is nice. They're trying to manipulate me. Look at how cute this is, right? Because they have no idea who they're talking to when they do it. Um, and the, the tricks that might work for your average person don't really work on a trained manipulator. They don't really work on a trained interrogator or a trained spy. But yeah, when someone's trying to lie to you, the, the biggest giveaway isn't, isn't where they look. It's not a facial expression or a micro expression, they'll, they'll 
you'll always have someone on Instagram trying to sell you a book or sell you a YouTube video course or something about how you can read micro expressions. Micro expressions are extremely difficult uh, and they aren't reliable. What is reliable is just asking the logical follow-up questions because what happens is when people are lying, they often haven't thought the lie through. So there's a series of questions that you can ask, just two or three questions deep, that will make a liar stumble almost every time. Asking questions that are logical follow-up questions about feelings, asking questions that are logical follow-up questions about order of operations, and then asking people logical follow-up questions where they just have to repeat something that they said earlier in the conversation. Those are three really powerful, simple ways that you can trip a liar up without them even realizing it. Because when liars lie, they haven't built what's known as a legend for their lie. A legend is the, it's the foundation, the framework for the falsehood that you're telling. So essentially, when, when a spy goes undercover, we build a legend, a very comprehensive, it doesn't have to be complicated, but a comprehensive foundation that holds the, the house that is our cover identity. When most people lie, they don't take the time to build a legend. They just tell a lie, and then they're, they're backpedaling trying to defend that lie. And that's why they fall apart when you start asking questions. Those are three great, easy, like applicable tips. Have, when you know when someone's lying, and you're, I guess, ever messing with them and toying with them, have you ever asked like just a totally random question just to completely mess with them and throw them off their game? Something like, so hey, what, what's your dog's name or something? I don't know. Yeah, so this is, now you're getting into something that's, that is, it sounds funny, right? But it's completely unprofessional. When uh, you have the upper hand, when you have the advantage over somebody, you don't toy with them. You don't mess with them. You have the advantage, man, right? It's like if a football team is winning on the, on the, at the Super Bowl, if they're up by 14 points, they don't start dicking around and messing with the opponent right? They just keep executing to the maximum capability using every advantage they have and using the fact that they have the lead. When you start messing around with somebody, you run the risk of, of screwing up because you don't train to mess around. You train to win. So it's a very amateur move. Whenever you see anybody just messing with somebody, like that's why you see that kind of stuff on like, on like the bar scene and you see it on, you see it in high school and you see it in early stages of college. When people are cocky and they start messing around, they always screw up. Professionals don't do that. So when we catch somebody in a lie, we do everything we can to make sure they feel very confident that they have not been caught because that gives us informational superiority, right? You're in the Air Force. You understand the Air Force's mission is air superiority. The thing that's killing Ukraine right now is that nobody will help them win air superiority, right? was the exact same way in espionage, only with the superiority we're pursuing is information superiority. So on that, like you talk about, you know, not toying with people and just basically just being very professional and just uh, with the intent of winning, uh, the staying focused and uh, staying to the, to the structure. How much, how much training is placed or emphasis is placed on? Because to me, it's very easy for someone with your background and training to easily get the upper hand. But how much emphasis and training has gone into having empathy and sympathy. Empathy and sympathy are interesting things, right? So sympathy, sympathy is not something you can control. Sympathy is something that you feel inherently. Empathy is something that you can control. Empathy is, it, it's a mix of emotion and logic. 
So when, when I, when your dog dies and I know that your dog has died and I remember my dog dying, I feel sympathy for you. I'm like, Oh man, that's, that's sad. I feel your sadness. I feel sad for you. And I can't really do anything about that. That doesn't mean I have to tell you I feel sad. It doesn't mean I have to do anything about it because I feel it. Empathy, on the other hand, is when I can actually understand that you feel sad and why you feel sad. I might, I might feel the same sadness, but it's more useful than that because now it's like, oh, your dog died. Maybe I never had a dog that died. And I'm like, oh, your dog died. You're sad. Well, if you're sad about your dog, let's talk about the guy that hurt your dog. Let's talk about your dad who bought you that dog. Let's talk about your favorite memory with that dog. So we're trained to use empathy as a tool to unlock conversation topics and unlock secrets that the person otherwise wouldn't have talked about. Every time you break up with a girlfriend, every time your kids get hurt, every time your boss treats you like trash, we have an opportunity to empathize in that moment with a target and unlock access to things that that target would not talk about otherwise. There's lots of things that you would never talk about with me over dinner or watching a ball game or out, you know, throwing a football back and forth. There's some things that you would never talk about. But as soon as something bad happens, now there's a window. We call them windows and doors. There's a window for me to use empathy to unlock a subject that you otherwise would never talk about. So empathy is super useful to us. Sympathy is present, but it's less useful because sympathy is only useful if it helps us unlock empathy, but we're going to be distracted from our empathy if we're focused on our own sympathy. Hopefully that makes sense. It did. Fantastic. I've never heard. That's just a well thought out and probably the best explanation in between empathy and sympathy that I've personally ever heard. I want to explore this rabbit hole because you touched on a couple of things and I think there's a lot more there. How can someone just digging deeper, how can someone use empathy and sympathy to influence outcomes and benefit those within their sphere of influence? So let's take your whole, a big part of your focus in, in this awesome show that you've built is on like passing wisdom forward, right? And a lot of it, the focus is, is on doing that through mentoring relationships. So if you look at any, any mentoring relationship, assumes that one person is the mentor and one person is the mentee and that the mentee is there to learn from the mentor. So if we just look at that relationship specifically, a mentee-mentor relationship, it's human nature. We are misled into thinking that a mentor has to be selfless to give their wisdom and their time. So we end up, like, if you follow LinkedIn or if you read any of the garbage books that are out there, there's lots of people who are like, oh, mentors are hard to find. Mentors are hard to find because mentors are these giving, gracious people who are super successful, but also willing to spend extra time teaching you how they did it. Mentors are not hard to find. Mentors are everywhere. What you need to understand is that the lie isn't about mentors being hard to find. The lie is that mentors are people who are giving themselves freely. No mentor worth your time and effort is doing something for free. They're not giving you their time for free. They're not taking away from their business, taking away from their family, taking away from their own creative time. They're not taking away from that so they can sit with you for an hour and pour their wisdom into you. That's baloney. What a good mentor, there are people who will do that, but those people are not good mentors. 
a good mentor knows that an, that a relationship is supposed to be transactional, that they will give you their time and knowledge, and they are expecting you to give them something back in return. What you give as a junior person, it's not going to be the same thing that they give as a mentor. They're not going to give you, you're not going to give them wisdom they don't have. You're not going to give them insights in a network that they don't already have. But what you are going to give them is a different perspective. You're going to give them a fresh take on old ideas. You might even be able to give them actual skills that they don't know how, like they don't know even are out there. There are, there are, if you talk to the average 50 year old business success right now, he only knows three or four social media platforms. He doesn't even know that there's 15 or 18 that are out there. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the kind of stuff that young people know because young people have access to excess time. Older successful people, they're at a they're at a loss of time. So they don't have the time to learn what works, what doesn't work. They don't know what the newest trending stuff is. They don't know what has you know real potential long-term value and what's going to be a flash in the pan. Young people have the opportunity to answer those questions for older people, which is what makes having a mentee a very profitable thing if you are a mentor. But if you sit down at coffee with your mentee and they just sit there like an open book waiting for you to scribble your thoughts down, that's exactly how that's exactly how mentee mentor relationships die. Because no mentor is going to waste their time on somebody who's just a one way you know, vacuum of information. No, it's a two way mentorship. It's a two way partnership. And right. Yeah. And I think the one way. Uh, one direction is just a very old school, old mindset. And I bring that up because your question was about empathy and sympathy, right? Yeah. So if you, if you are a mentee, the place to target your empathy is on your mentor. Because most mentees that I've met don't have, they don't spend any effort sympathizing or empathizing with their mentor. Mentees seem to think that their mentor has it all figured out. <laughs> well, he's already a millionaire. He's already successful. He's already doing everything. Or she, she's already super, she's beautiful and she's fit and she's got four kids and a happy marriage. She's got it all. You are dead wrong if you look at a mentor and think that they have it all. If they had it all, they would see no benefit in sitting down with you. There is clearly something they're looking for and they are hopeful that by sitting with you, you can fulfill whatever that gap is a gap in knowledge, a fresh perspective, even just like an entertaining conversation. There is something that that person is missing. And by sitting with you, they hope that you will fulfill it. If you can have your empathy and sympathy radar up when they make that decision and they say yes to sitting with you, if, if you make a phone call on Monday and you invite them to coffee on Wednesday and they say yes, You've got from Monday until Wednesday to start thinking, what can I offer this person? What does this person have? Or more importantly, what is this person, what is this person's pain point? What are they missing that makes it worth it to them to sit with me for coffee on Wednesday? Maybe they're just doing it out of the kindness of their heart, but most likely they're doing it because there's something they think they might get out of it too. What is that thing? If you turn on your empathy and sympathy radar then and you show up ready to rock, you show up like a professional at that meeting on at that coffee on Wednesday morning, you're going to learn quickly. You're going to see something. You're going to hear something. You're going to have researched something that you know will be useful to that person. We make a joke. It's not a joke. It's our mantra at the CIA that the goal of every meeting is just to get another meeting. 
every time you sit with somebody who's a potential asset, all you want to do is just sit with that person again and again and again until they prove to be useful or until they prove to be a waste of your time. If you could just make that a goal of every time you sit with a mentor, every time you sit with your boss, every time you sit with a coworker, the goal is just to bring something to the table that fulfills what they're looking for, that gives them some, some bit of knowledge or insight they didn't previously have. Because there's a reason they're sitting with you. If you can find that thing and give that to them and work towards meeting again, then before you know it, you're going to have tons of influence built in that relationship. And you'll be able to use that for anything you want. I, I love it because like you talked about it being transactional and transactional is not always monetary value. It could be like, like you mentioned, like just learning about various social media platforms. And like most people think there's four, right? Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and uh, I'll say TikTok. But there's so, many, there's so many different things out there now. But people, yeah, the, the mentor or the person in that position definitely wants something back. Those are some great tips. I love just all the detail and just well thought out uh, ideas you have regarding empathy and sympathy. What are some other easy and simple people skills that the CIA gave you to help unlock peak performance, you know, reach mental optimization and achieve your best life ever? Yeah, so a super powerful tool is something I call the power of questions. Now, when most people have a conversation, they want to, and they think about being a part of the conversation, or they think about being in control of the conversation. When, you, when people think about that, they assume that the person who tells the most lively story, or the person who is the most entertaining, or the person who is the most knowledgeable that those are the people in control of a conversation. They're, they're totally wrong. If yeah. you want to be in control of a conversation, you have to be the one asking the questions. And there's two benefits to asking questions. The first big benefit to asking questions is that you determine what direction the conversation goes. Just look at this interview with you and me, Martin. Who's in control of this conversation? It's not me. <laughs> it's you. You are, you are making, if you were to consider our conversation like a railroad, you're making hard left turns and right turns. You're choosing when we change topics and what we're changing the topic to. And you're controlling that because you're the one asking questions. I'm just a talking mouth. I'm just a big talking face answering the questions that you're answering because that's what human nature drives us to do. We answer the questions that other people ask. So whenever you ask a question, you the other person is fighting human instinct not to answer that question. They want to answer that question. Their, their cognitive brain is bringing them satisfaction by answering your question. It's one of the reasons why you can catch a liar because a liar has to put an extra step in where they make up a lie about their answer. So it slows down their cognitive reasoning. So the first big advantage about asking questions is that when you ask a question, you control the direction of the conversation. The second big super secret about questions is that when people talk and other people listen, that drops, uh, releases dopamine in the human brain, which is a feel-good chemical. So every time you ask me a question, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good about me because you think I'm interesting and you think what I'm saying is so interesting that you're not going to interrupt. That releases a chemical hormone in my brain that makes me feel like I can trust you. Oh, Martin, Martin understands that I'm an expert. Martin thinks that I'm interesting. Martin thinks that I'm handsome, whatever it might be. I like Martin. So 
So when you're the one asking questions, you're doing both of these things at the same time. You are subconsciously getting someone to trust you because they believe that you think they're an expert. They believe that you think they are interesting. But then you're also controlling the conversation. You are telling them exactly what they're supposed to say to you and getting the information you need. It works like a charm in espionage when we're trying to collect secrets. But it can work in your dating relationships. It can work in your relationships with your kids. If you're married, how often are we assuming that the other person is disinterested in us? How often do we find ourselves in a situation where there's one piece of information that we want, but we don't want to have to ask for it? Right. It's just it's ridiculous how how often in relationships, the closer the relationship goes, like marriages or long term friends, the the more we assume and the less we just ask. But if you just use the power of questions and you understand that every question you ask has has dual benefits to you, then it completely transforms your everyday life. Do you like the questions I'm asking? <laughs> I think you got some good questions, man. I like I like that they're deep, uh, and I hope that you don't mind that I you know spend 15 minutes answering each one. No, this is fantastic content. I'm loving it. And something that's helped me is you know we were talking a little bit about the show, but and I kind of give you a brief you know history of me. In addition to podcasting, is I also do improv comedy uh, just as a hobby. And for me. It's been so many, I mostly, I started it just as kind of like a, an outlet, right? Just something fun, something I was really interested in, but there's been direct impact from consistent. I've been doing improv comedy for about six years and taking direct impact from that to my work and personal life because improv comedy has really like in order to be a successful, cause you perform as a group and it's not scripted, you know, it's all impromptu. You have to hone in and listen to what your other teammates are doing and saying, including the most minor details verbally and just body language wise, that stuff, it's really helped me become a better listener and just more engaged. And so I, yeah, uh, improv comedy, I started it as a personal thing. Just again, I love acting and performing, but it's, it's, it's benefiting me so much in my work and personal life as well as I build relationships with people. Yeah. It's funny. Improv is one of those things that uh, that I come across quite often in the corporate world specifically. There's a lot of folks that I work with in the corporate sector who have their go-to improv person to help do icebreakers at corporate events or executive functions. Uh, just because like you said, there's, there's something awesome about leaning into the discomfort of the unknown. And that's what every, every time you step on stage with improv, that's exactly what you're doing. You have no idea what's coming and you have to lean into it because the show must go on. The show must go on. Now, I love that you said I'm taking some sharp left turns, some sharp right turns. I want to warn you, give you uh, kind of like a, a highway sign exit, maybe five miles down the road. The last <laughs> couple of questions are going to be completely lighthearted and they're going to be a complete like U-turn at the last when you're driving 80 down the highway. <laughs> so just mentally prepare for that, right? Your GPS is not working. and e you know, turns. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, if, if, if your wife is anything like mine, you're driving, she's doing the directions. And then she forgets to tell you, and it's like uh, 10 yards out. Turn now. Uh, more on that in a few minutes. But right now, I do want to kind of do like a slight veer right on the mental optimization uh, subject that I'd, I'd asked in the previous question. Uh, I'm surrounded by people who are constantly looking to evolve. What are some quick mental optimization hacks reserved for the intel, uh elite to control any situation that you want to share here and, and people can apply right away? 
Yeah, so there's two that are super simple that I lean on every day. And I've leaned on them since my days at the academy. Actually, the first one I actually learned at the academy. I was a freshman and I was a varsity athlete at the Air Force Academy. And um, a senior, junior on the same team uh, was watching me struggle one day through practice because I was super tired. And this was in the first semester of my freshman year. I was really, really new to the Air Force Academy. What's he looked at me? Sorry, what's I was, I was, Yeah, I was a varsity fencer. So okay. the Air Force Academy has an international fencing team. So I was there and I was working through practice and this guy pulled me aside and he was like, you know, dude, what's what's going on? You're not focused. You know, we come here to train. This is not this is not elite. You stumbling around, yawning, tired, forgetting what the coach is saying is not elite, right? So what's going on? And I just told him, I was like, oh, I was up late last night studying. Like, you know, I'm trying to keep up with whatever the studies are because the academics are really intensive. And he looked me square in the face and he said, there is nothing more important for you to do while you're in this institution than sleep. And he just straight up, he was like, if you're not getting at least eight hours of sleep a night, you are setting yourself up to fail because it's impossible to keep up with all the academics. That's by design. But when you sleep and you're well rested, you will, you will intrinsically retain more of the information that you're learning in class. Once you let yourself get tired, you will be diluting the amount of information you retain and you will be forcing yourself to have to go back and reread, relearn, revisit notes and textbooks and everything else. And then if that leads you to sleep less, then it's a negative progression, right? You sleep less, you intrinsically retain less, you have to study more, which means that you sleep less still, and you intrinsically retain less still. <clears throat> so you can see how it's kind of like a, a, a slow decay into chaos. So he taught me that when I was 18 years old. Fast forward to me being 27 years old at the, Air Force, at the uh, CIA, and I had the exact same conversation again with somebody there uh, during my training, my training year, my training months at the farm, where the guy was like, look, if you want to understand an asset, all you have to do is sleep. Just sleep. Get all the sleep you can get. Get all the rest that you can get, because then your, your observations on time on target are maximized. When you're not sitting there thinking about how tired you are, when you're not, pretend, when you're not trying to hide your yawn, and you're not, you know, stretching because you're tired or wondering where your next cup of coffee's come from, all that, all that activity takes energy. When you can focus that energy into observing your target instead, then when you leave that one hour meeting or that two hour time on target, you're going to have gigabytes of information just on download in your brain. So the first big hack that I always teach my folks is to start sleeping more. We are, as Americans, we are perpetually underslept. It's like 60 or 70% of high school students are, are not getting the minimum required sleep they need to make it through the day. And it only gets worse from there. And most places, most people wear it as a badge of honor that they're insomniacs. They don't, they stay up late or I don't need to sleep. That's baloney. Like everybody needs to sleep. Your brain is wired to do its best to optimize its performance. We're talking about optimization. If you want to optimize your freaking brain, you've got to set your brain up for success. It is built to be optimized when you rest. It is not built to be optimized on stimulants, stimulants like caffeine or anything else. So get your sleep. Get your sleep. It's going to take about 72 hours before sleep really starts to become like 
a light bulb difference, like a transformative difference. But if you can get three days where you get a solid night's rest, everything's different. When you wake up on that fourth day, guaranteed, you will see the world in a completely different uh, set of point of view because everything just comes easier. You remember things faster. You only have to hear things once. You can predict the motions and activities and you can even predict what other people are gonna say because guess what? All those assholes are not sleeping enough. They move slower. It's like, it's like watching the world move in slow motion when you are well rested. It's easy to stay one step ahead of everybody because they're all perpetually tired, chasing the next energy drink, chasing the next cup of coffee, Right? They're chasing the next chance they have to you know, sit on the sofa and close their eyes for a 20-minute show with the kids. It's a super advantage when you just have enough rest. That's the first big mental hack. The second mental hack is kind of related. We're taught that in the afternoons, when you start feeling tired in the afternoon, it's not really a sign that you're, that you're physically tired because you haven't slept enough. For us, we know we have slept enough. So when that two o'clock to five o'clock time frame comes and you feel that lull in energy, it's actually a depletion of glucose in your bloodstream. The food that you've eaten all morning, the, the calories that you consume from the time that you woke up to the time that you ate lunch, those calories have been burned because most of your activity happens before two to three in the afternoon. Your heavy thinking, your heavy working, your heavy uh, labor, it all happens usually before two to five o'clock in the afternoon. That's a huge depletion of resources inside your body in terms of uh, calories, uh, sugars, carbohydrates, proteins. So what we're taught is in that window of time, don't look to a stimulant. Don't turn to caffeine. Don't try to take a power nap. Instead, give your body what it's actually missing. What it's actually missing is something called glucose. Glucose is naturally occurring in all of your fruits and vegetables that are out there, specifically in fruits. It's, there's high concentrations of glucose in oranges, apples, strawberries, cherries, grapes, watermelon. If you just have eight ounces of fruit, if you have your average apple, if you have your average orange, if you have a, a ripe banana, right? Within 15 minutes of consuming that fruit, the glucose is going to hit your bloodstream and you're going to just zap back to life. And the calories and the fiber inside that fruit make it so that the glucose levels are sustained for about another three or four hours, which gets you to dinner. So for all those people who are destroying their sleep habits because they're drinking coffee at two o'clock in the afternoon, and then that caffeine keeps them up until 11 o'clock, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, if they can replace that afternoon coffee with an apple, or replace it with you know, a dozen grapes, or replace it with, uh, with a handful of cherries, when you do that, you get the same hit, the same energy that you would get from an artificial stimulant like caffeine. You get it from the natural glucose that your body is actually seeking, which just puts your whole biorhythm back on track and allows you to go to sleep at 8 or 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock and get a full night's rest and be up and ready to rock at 6 a.m. the next day. So those are my two biohacks, man. Give your body what it wants and your body's going to do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to optimize its own performance. Give it sleep and give it glucose. I love it because I definitely fell victim, especially over the past 10 years or so, because it seems like it was really glamorized for people to only get four hours of sleep a night, you know, stay up late to get that extra hour, a couple hours of work, and then wake up early so you're ahead of everyone and waking up at three or four o'clock in the morning. But I noticed for me, 
Like if I wasn't getting eight hours, it would, it would totally impact my entire day because it would impact my, my mood, my productivity, my eating habits, which would then lead to when I did work, when I do work out, like just not optimizing my workouts just because I'm sluggish or I don't know, it, it, it changes so much. Yep. So for me, what I've started doing is going to bed at nine and sleeping till five just to get that eight hours and then just work out uh, before I go to work. And um, it's tough going to bed at nine, but I do like just during a day, I, I feel like I'm owning the day more with that. You talked about the sleep habits because I love that because I'm a big, you know, uh, proponent of just getting sleep and, and all that. But can you think of maybe like, is there, do you have like any other, is there like a certain routine that you have in the mornings, like a certain set of processes that really just kind of best prepare you throughout the rest of the day? Yeah. You know, and it's funny because when I will fully admit that my morning routine is out of reach for most people, uh, which makes me feel bad for most people, but also like, I don't know what to tell you. If, when, you're, when you're good enough, you will get to this morning routine, right? So the first thing is I don't have to wake up to an alarm. Oh. When you can stop waking up to an alarm, not just like whether you've trained your body and your biorhythm is so tight that it wakes up at the same time with no alarm, or because you've built a life where you don't have to be anywhere specifically in the morning, so you can just wake up whenever your body chooses to wake up. Either one of those two options still leads to the same outcome of not having an alarm. Waking up naturally with no alarm is a huge benefit to your body because there's no startle reflex. An alarm triggers your startle reflex, which spikes your adrenaline first thing in the morning, which is a loss of uh, adrenaline is a hormone that drains energy, except that you're, you have no energy first thing in the morning. You're on an empty stomach. You don't have any resources that you've put in your body for the last eight or 12 hours. So that's why it feels so crappy to wake up to an alarm. You're startled. You wake up. You have no energy to counterbalance the fact that you were just startled. So then you just hit the snooze button and you just try to lay there and it feels like trash, right? We all know what that feels like. Yeah. When you get to it, my routine, I wake up to no alarm. Sometimes that means I wake up with sunlight. Sometimes that means I wake up to the sounds of my kids in the far room, like playing with their toys <laughs> or reading their book, whatever it is. But I wake up to no alarm. Usually that happens somewhere between 7.15 and 8.15. I'll wake up on my own. And then the first thing I do is I get up and I drink a half liter of water. Uh, the half liter of water is really important because most people put something, uh, if, if you are, anything you consume is either water or food. If you consume food, it takes water to digest your food. So even if you're drinking coffee or orange juice or whatever else, milk, you're actually not drinking water, you're consuming food. And it's going to take water in your system to digest that thing, to process whatever it is you just consumed. So the first thing you've got to give your body is water. So I drink a half liter of water. What that water does is it floods my system with hydration. That hydration is immediately used by my major organs that have been dehydrated for the last eight to 12 hours. Uh, one of those major organs, organs that it goes to is your, is your bladder and your colon. 90% of human bodily health actually happens in the colon. A healthy colon is what leads to a healthy body. Uh, and then your bladder is what is your waste management system. So your, your body is like supercharged with hydration. Now, anytime you consume anything after the water, your body's prepared to handle it. If you eat fruit, if you eat toast, if you eat whatever, junk donuts, if you drink a cup of coffee, your body is fully hydrated, your organs are hydrated, and now it can process all of those things really efficiently. 
So just between waking up with no alarm and then drinking a half liter of water, within about 20 to 30 minutes of waking up, I'm wide awake and I feel good. No caffeine needed, no jumping jacks, no workout needed. I am sharp and I'm ready to rock and roll. And then that's when I go and I move into whatever I'm doing next. I'll have, usually I'll have fruit first thing in the morning. I'll use my glucose afternoon hack. I'll use that first thing in the morning. Uh, give my body some simple sugars and some simple fibers. And then I'll move into coffee and eggs and butter and oil and all the other stuff that we roll into on a normal day. When people talk about they're rich and they say, oh, I want to have $2 million in the bank. To me, being like my rich, myself rich, is about living a life with specific things that I can do without fear. But to get to a place where I can wake up without having to use an alarm, just whenever my body's ready to wake up, like that would be phenomenal. Like to me, that's part of my rich. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, was, I mean, I love that. Especially like on the weekends, I'll, you know, I'll sleep in. And some days I'm so tired. So I'll sleep in until 10. And, you know, you're, like we're always, I feel like we're always in sleep deprivation. But I love that feeling on Saturday. And, you know, I'm such in a deep sleep. And, you know, I, I raise my arm up and my shoulder just has like a loud pop, right? Like th- that type of sleep. And I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I uh, turn now. I want to, uh, that's my, <laughs> my, my notice for you to, uh, we're about to switch completely. And as we're wrapping up, because I think I only have like five minutes left on this, uh, on the Zoom call, but what is a spy movie that most resembles your life? And this is a planned question, by the way. Typically, I try to keep it pretty organic, but this is something that uh, I planned out. Yeah, so the <laughs> all, of, all of the action spy movies are not at all realistic. So you're not going to hear me. You're not going to hear me say that any of those are very good. Uh, if you want, if you want a spy movie that's closest to like real life, you'd have to honestly look at something like Office Space, which isn't even a spy movie. <laughs> They're not expect Office that. <laughs> is extremely close to what spy life is like. And then there's these awesome Rowan Atkins movies called Yeah. Johnny English movies are awesome. Those are very close to what it's like. You got somebody who's trying super hard to be super cool and they constantly make blunders and everybody around them is a little bit of an asshole and somehow the mission still still makes it through at the end. So Johnny English, if you haven't looked them up, those are excellent spy movies. With Office Space, I think the key question to ask now is, how deadly are you with the stapler? With the red line? Is it swing line? Or what, what was that brand? The red, yeah, the red stapler. That's so true. <laughs> One of these days, there's going to be a spy movie starring you and about your life. Instead of like people like disarming people with guns and like doing all these crazy cool tricks, it's just going to be you with the stapler just being a complete badass and taking out like 10, <laughs> 10 people. Our, uh, last question is, if there was a billboard with your picture on it and your leadership message. And let's just pretend there's a traffic jam. So everyone on the highway or uh, interstate, whatever, has to see your picture and read your leadership message. What would you want it to say? I would have it say one life, no compromises. And that's, I, I carry that to my grave, man. That's the tagline for my whole business. You only get one life. Don't make any compromises. Love it. As as soon as you said that, I'm like, I I think I read that on his website this morning. (laughs) Uh, Where's the best place for people to find out more about you? Absolutely. If uh, if folks want to find me, you'll find me, honestly, at the website anytime, everydayspy.com. So if you just go to any browser, everydayspy.com, you'll find me there. If you like podcasts, I have an iTunes Top 100 podcast called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. 
Uh, and if you can join me there, I have a new, I've been running new episodes ever since 2017. Uh, Everyday Espionage podcast on any of your favorite platforms and I'll be, I'll be there. Andrew, thank you so much. I can't express truly uh, how much this means to me. You are fantastic and very interesting. Again, just, just humbled. And uh, thanks for joining me this morning. Absolutely, Martin. Thanks very much for what you're doing, man. You're, you're, you're giving everybody a service, brother. A service thank you. I appreciate beyond, that. Beyond the service of serving in uniform, too. So keep it up, brother. I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of Passing the Torch. Thanks to Andrew for joining and sharing his insight. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you did, take a screenshot and tag Passing the Torch on social media so we can share it. I believe you with this quote from Eric Thomas. When you find your way, you find a way to make it happen. Consider subscribing to Passing the Torch if you're not already. And remember, vision, relate, develop. Until next time, foster out.